0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. Today, for our multidisciplinary tumor board, we have two lung cancer specialists. Dr. Erin Gillespie and Dr. Shankar Siva. Dr. Gillaspie is an assistant professor of thoracic surgery at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. She is the director of the Thoracic Surgery Robotics Program at Vanderbilt and is a renowned expert in minimally invasive surgery for lung cancer. Erin, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey, guys. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We're also joined by Dr. Shankar Siva. Dr. Siva is an associate professor at the University of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia, and a radiation oncologist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center. He leads the stereotactic radiation program there and brings an expertise in all types of radiotherapy. Shankar, thank you for taking the time.
2: Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Aaron. I'm very excited. And hello from sunny Australia.
0: All right. Today for this virtual tumor board, we'll be discussing a case of stage three non-small cell lung cancer. This is one of my patients, and I'm a firm believer that stage three can only be properly managed after a multidisciplinary discussion. For this case, we have a 52-year-old male, never smoker who noted persistent cough that didn't improve despite antibiotics. He had a chest x-ray that prompted a CT scan and ultimately had a 6-centimeter left upper lobe lung mass with mediastinal invasion and mildly enlarged hylar and mediastinal lymph nodes. He has no other relevant medical history and is in good general health. He had a brain MRI from his primary care doctor that showed no metastases and was referred for a CT-guided biopsy that revealed lung adenocarcinoma. He had a PET scan done that showed FDG uptake in that 6-centimeter left upper low lung mass, mild uptake in those left and paratracheal nodes. He was then referred to me in medical oncology. Aaron, let me start with you. The radiology report we got read mediastinal invasion, which would classify this tumor as a T4. From a surgeon's perspective, how reliable is CT for mediastinal invasion and any other tests that you need here?
1: That's such a great question. So mediastinal invasion is a really important question in helping us to decide resectability. In a lot of cases, invasion into mediastinal structures precludes surgery. There are, of course, some exceptions to that rule. So invasion into the carina or distal drachea can sometimes be resected with a pneumonectomy or sleeve bronchoplasty minimal invasion into the atrium adjacent to the pulmonary artery, or sometimes tumor extension through the vasculature are some other examples of when we'd still consider surgery. So how do we determine the invasion ahead of time? Well, I'd love to tell you that we have the perfect imaging modality, but the reality is, is that we just don't. CT scan has a diagnostic accuracy of really only 56 to 89%, depending on the study that you read. Some of the criteria that we look for on CT scan to try and help us diagnose mediastinal invasion includes contact over longer places, so over three centimeters of contiguous contact, abnormal soft tissue opacities infiltrating into the mediastinal fat, obliteration of fat planes between the mass and structures, the presence of mass effect, and then of course adjacent pleural and pericardial thickening. I also look for sequelae of invasions, so things like elevated hemidiaphragm, which can represent nerve involvement, or if a patient presents with hoarseness and the is located in an area near where I'd expect the recurrent laryngeal nerve to travel. MRI might have a slight advantage, um, according to some authors and radiologists, but honestly, most studies still show that it has a very similar diagnostic accuracy, somewhere between 50 and 90%. I'm always also looking to leverage other technologies. So there's times that I ask my endoscopists for additional information on EBIS, US, which can also be helpful in in clarifying invasion.
0: Wow, so a lot more tools now than we had in the past. Shankar, for a stage three non-small cell lung cancer, we're often talking about radiation. Here, we've got a diagnosis of lung adenocarcinoma, and and we're gonna go with what Aaron said and say this, this does have mediastinal invasion. That PET scan showed avidity in the left and paratracheal nodes. Do we absolutely need to confirm the nodal status pathologically from your standpoint?
2: Well, this is still an area of open investigation. So one of my colleagues, Dan Stifetz, leading this national trial looking at this called SEISMIC, which is looking at comprehensive mediastinal interrogation with endobronchial ultrasounds at EBUS in the context of stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer planned for radiotherapy. The issue is complex because even though with radiotherapy, we are targeting the macroscopic nodes that are visible on the PET scan, there is always a bit of lower dose wash around the mediastinum. And possibly this low dose wash is sufficient to actually control these areas of microscopic disease that are around in the mediastinum. The other complexity is with the larger visible nodes on the PET scan, we cover this with a radiation treatment and Often it's unclear whether we would believe an eBus anyway, which is negative in that situation. If a PET positive and eBus negative node, we would. Def- I personally would cover this, but most radiation oncologists would be uncomfortable admitting this. So at the moment we do not routinely pursue eBus interrogation or media cell interrogation prior to radiotherapy.
0: Now, Aaron, I see that invasive mediastinal staging is a step that is often skipped among our colleagues. Can you comment on how critical mediastinal staging is in your practice? And maybe if you could contrast the two main approaches we use for that, EBUS and mediastinoscopy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think of invasive mediastinal staging as kind of a critical step when I'm thinking about potential surgery for patients. The extent of mediastinal disease, so the number of lymph nodes involved, the number of stations involved can affect prognosis and also choice of treatment. The things that I think about that always prompt me to really think about formal pathological staging includes location of the tumors, so more central tumors, presence of enlarged or PET-AVID lymph nodes, and of course, larger primary tumors. Now, the choice between the different modalities for sampling lymph nodes, so endoscopy-based or surgical procedures, really should depend on the local expertise of each center. One of the really nice advantages of EBUS, one of the things that I really like is it can be performed in the same setting as a biopsy of the primary tumor simply by exchanging scopes. So you can use a scope to do your navigational bronchoscopy, get a diagnosis of your tumor, and then perform endobronchial ultrasound to not only visually assess the lymph nodes with the ultrasound, checking for heterogeneity, checking for size, but also allowing for guided sampling of the nodes. In experienced hands, EBIS is very safe, and it has a sensitivity of 90% and a specificity of 100%, with a very high negative predictive value of 90%. Mediastinoscopy, or the surgical approach, was long the gold standard of mediastinal nodal assessment before EBIS came along. It's a surgical procedure creating a small incision at the base of the neck, and then we dissect down along the outer anterior surface of the trachea, and we sample lymph nodes along the length of the trachea. This, just like EBIS, can be performed very safely. It can be done in an outpatient setting or even at the time of definitive surgical resection. And also like EBIS, it has a very high sensitivity and specificity of 95 to 100% respectively. One of the differences between the two procedures is which lymph nodes can be easily reached. So mediastinoscopy, the surgical approach, classically samples stations two right, two left, four right, four left, and seven. So really staying... Pretty close around that paratracheal subcorinal area, whereas EBIS with our smaller scopes being endobronchial can actually reach more places. And so in addition to the two, fours and sevens, we're classically seeing the more experienced bronchoscopists and thoracic surgeons going after stations 10, 5, and even eight sometimes via US. So they'll go down into the esophagus and sample lymph nodes as well. But I think the important thing is just like any procedure, results are influenced by who is performing the case. So. A poorly performed EBUS is going to have poor sensitivity and specificity, and likewise for immediate stenoscopy.
0: That's a great point. We have to tailor it to your specific institution. Erin, who's doing these EBUS and mediastinoscopies? Mediastinoscopy, obviously, the surgeon. Do surgeons also do EBUS?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of surgeons who do EBUS. In fact, some of the people who first helped to develop the procedure were thoracic surgeons. And so there's a little bit of institutional variability with that as well. At our institution, we do the mediastinoscopies, and we have this incredible group of interventional pulmonologists who specializes in the EBUS. They specialize in navigational bronchoscopy and even pleuroscopy. In some centers, it's thoracic surgeons who are doing both. So it's a little bit varied as far as practice and experience all throughout the country.
0: And if you were doing a mediastinoscopy, is that an outpatient procedure or is that an overnight stay?
1: So for the majority of patients, that is an outpatient procedure. If I'm doing a standalone mediastinoscopy. Now, if I'm doing that in conjunction with a procedure, the patient will stay inpatient for whatever length of time they need to recover from their pulmonary resection. But for a mediastinoscopy alone, it is an outpatient procedure.
0: And for most of your invasive staging, you're doing EBUS at Vanderbilt?
1: We are, yes. The majority of patients are having EBUS. Now, if we have a PET positive mediastinum and all of the nodes are negative on EBUS and we're still highly suspicious, then we're going to do a confirmatory mediastinoscopy. We live in an area that has a lot of histoplasmosis. It's endemic here. So a lot of patients come in with abnormal nodes. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about lymph nodes, sampling lymph nodes to make sure that we have a really accurate, not only diagnosis, but stage for our patients.
0: Yeah. Excellent point. Shankar at Peter Mack, are you using a lot of EBUS or are you still doing mediastinoscopy?
2: We rarely do mediastinoscopy, only as uh, Aaron was mentioning, if we're trying to access some of those anterior mediastinal nodes, typically it's EBUS and predominantly performed by the Excellent. Excellent.
0: Now, in our case, EBUS was performed. We also have a a great team of interventional pulmonologists that confirmed L11 and L4 adenopathy. So we have a stage three non-small cell lung cancer with ipsilateral mediastinal involvement. There are a lot of strategies being explored in this space. And one of the important distinctions we have to make up front is resectability. So let me go to you, Aaron. How do you decide whether a tumor is resectable or not?
1: Yeah, so that's so important. So it's, it's funny because I hear a lot of people using terms interchangeably of resectable and operable. And resectable is purely a technical term. So it is a technical ability to completely remove a tumor. And the oncologic goal in that kind of technical procedure is to achieve an R0 resection with N-block resection of any adjacent structure that has invasion, of course, thoughtful reconstruction, and then a complete lymphadenectomy. So it's, it's really the technical aspects of the procedure that we're thinking about. Now, there's a lot of important structures that are, find themselves within the chest. And so, you know, sometimes it's resecting and reconstructing part of the chest wall sometimes it's resecting and reconstructing mediastinal structures. And so coming in with having carefully reviewed imaging, a careful operative plan, and then of course, making sure that a patient can tolerate the proposed procedure is of paramount importance.
0: And so when you say tolerate, I assume you're talking about PFT thresholds. Can you go over what your thresholds are for surgery?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Patient factors are so important. And so you know, I love the term operable for patients. So determining whether, you know, a tumor is operable. So that's taking into account, not only resectability, but a patient's ability to tolerate a resection. And I think, you know, PFTs are a huge part of that, but I always like to touch on a couple of other things too. So, you know, when I'm thinking about taking a patient to surgery, I'm primarily focused on removing the lung cancer, but I have to make sure that they're medically fit enough and that their other comorbid conditions are sufficiently stable or managed that they're not going to create a significant or prohibitive perioperative risk. Of course, smoking cessation is of paramount importance, ensuring that a patient is going to have a high quality of life post-procedurally. And then, of course, course the respiratory piece. So one of the big critical things that we're always talking about is pulmonary function. And the two numbers that we rely really heavily on are FEV1 and DLCO. DLCO has, in literature, really correlated the best with perioperative morbidity. So what we generally do is we calculate our post-operative predicted values of DLCO and FEV1. And if those are above 60% for our proposed resection, then it is safe to proceed. And we calculate that post-operative predicted by taking the total number of segments in the lung. So as long as the patient has had no prior surgeries, that's 19 segments. And we take their pre-operative predicted value of either the DLCO or FEV1, and then we cross-multiply with the anticipated number of residual segments. Now, this assumes that all segments are created equally. So in a patient with a low DLCO but a very heterogeneous lung, a VQ scan can be very, very helpful in better estimating the postoperative predicted value. Because it may be that the area that you're going to resect. So for example, a patient with highly emphyseminous lungs with an apical predominant distribution, that part of the lung may not be contributing very significantly to the overall lung function. Now, if we have a post-operative predicted value that is less than 30%, now the cutoff value varies just a little bit between institutions. I think absolutely everybody agrees that we shouldn't go less than 30%, but some people use 35 and some use even 40. Then if you see a value of post-operative predicted that's going to be lower than that threshold, additional testing is required. And usually that's in the form of a cardiopulmonary exercise stress test. And that helps to better risk stratify. So if we have a value or a result of that, that's greater than 20 mLs per kg per minute, then the patient's considered to be low risk for surgery. If the value is between 10 and 20, it's a moderate risk with some kind of gradations in between. And then if it's less than 10, patients are very high risk. Most of us consider that to be a prohibitive risk. So a lot of factors to consider when determining if a patient is a candidate for surgery.
0: One of the, the key points here, I mean, there's so much thought that goes into this, Aaron, Unfortunately, I s- often see a patient's tumor being classified as unresectable without ever having met a surgeon or having no surgeon weigh in. I think that's really a mistake.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think especially in you know larger tumors, locally advanced tumors, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said at the beginning of, of the talk that these demand a multidisciplinary approach with medical oncology, radiation oncology, pulmonology, and thoracic surgery all coming together to determine the right treatment course for these patients.
0: Now, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but let me throw a hypothetical here. Let's, you know, this was an unresectable due to the degree of mediastinal invasion, but let's say we gave some systemic therapy. Can we convert a tumor from unresectable to resectable? So let's say this tumor had an ALK fusion and we gave an ALK tyrosine kinase inhibitor had a dramatic, impressive response. Would you consider surgery in that instance? I
1: love that question. So, you know, to me, when I think about neoadjuvant therapy, there's just so many benefits that we can see from it. You know, we have the opportunity to assess for treatment response, which is great. We can see it both radiographically as well as pathologically. It's the opportunity to address micrometastatic disease, something we all talk about a lot now as a reason for failure of, of therapies, especially local therapies. Studies have shown enhanced treatment compliance and completion. Of course, it allows me time to address all the comorbid conditions. I can enroll patients in prehabilitation. And then, of course, we talk a lot about this is the benefit of enhanced resectability. Because really, the, the overarching goals of surgery are we want this patient to have a really good oncologic resection. We want an R0 resection, and we want comprehensive mediastinal staging. You know, it's interesting to me because... When you look at a lot of the neoadjuvant trials and really kind of drill down to the surgical data, most of them have not really demonstrated that the the use of neoadjuvant therapy is routinely leading to a less aggressive surgery or is really allowing truly unresectable patients to suddenly become candidates for surgery. More commonly, we're seeing kind of these borderline resectable patients who have a sufficient disease response to be maybe considered for a section or Perhaps a reduction in disease allowing for the easier performance of a surgery or maybe converting to a sleeve resection rather than a pneumonectomy. But in the metastatic space, we've seen all of these dramatic responses in disease burden with the use of immunotherapy, targeted agents, and all of us can can talk about stories where we've gone on to perform resections of single site residual disease or resecting single sites of progression. So with this in mind, I think it's going to be just so interesting to see the data continue to unfold from trials like Checkmate 816, as well as neoadjuvant targeted therapy trials, because I think we will see in some of these circumstances a more dramatic treatment response, which could actually render truly unresectable patients into a resectable category. So. Oh my gosh. yeah, that that the whole prospect of that completely excites me in in rendering a patient down to a minimal residual disease that could be considered for a, a local therapy such as surgery
0: or or possibly radiation. I mean, Shankar, just Absolutely. like Aaron, you know so Aaron at Vanderbilt, you see a lot of sort of targeted subsets. Shankar, the same at Peter Mack, with a lot of work coming out of there. Do these discussions occur in your tumor board?
2: Absolutely. It's a, it's a common discussion and often the majority of the patients coming through our service with stage 3A disease do end up having chemoradiation. But the discussion up front is often about the possibility for resection, which is that idea of both operability and resectability as discussed by Erin. So these are important consideration and, and potentially that, that single station N2 patient is the one that we would consider for, for operations. So it's an interesting space to look at.
0: Now, ultimately, at our case, we decided this was an unresectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer after meeting and discussing with our surgeon. And so our standard approach would be concurrent chemo radiation. Now, Shankar, if we ultimately decide that this is an unresectable stage three, a non-small cell lung cancer, a standard approach would be concurrent chemo radiation. So if this patient was seen at Peter Mack, what would that look like? And are there tests that you need before chemo rats?
2: I really liked hearing about the information about pulmonary function tests from Erin. And interestingly for us, we do often take a baseline pulmonary function test for patients undergoing chemoradiation therapy. But typically, I, we don't tend to use a lower threshold for deciding eligibility for this approach. Interestingly, studies from ra- the radiation sphere have shown that patients who have a poorer baseline pulmonary function test often don't tend to lose as much. The more you have to begin with, the more pulmonary function you tend to lose afterwards, Whereas Disease lungs and emphysematous lungs often have a lower loss of pulmonary function. In general, my counseling for patients who've got low pulmonary function tests, say an FEV1 of 800 mL or less, is just that the threshold is set at that, but the reserve is lower. So if a patient runs into trouble, they may be having a more severe toxicity. But generally speaking, we don't use lower thresholds. One thing we do assess for and take a lot of interest in is pre existing interstitial lung disease. That's a a very interesting area that's being explored at the moment, but we do know that the toxicities of radiation in the context of active interstitial lung disease is higher. And so we often are more cognizant now of looking at the lung bases and around the lung parenchyma as well on radiology, just to check for this factor. And other things we do assess for in general, are other comorbidities that are relative contradictions to radiotherapy. Things like connective tissue disorders, prior radiation in the thoracic fields, and pacemaker placement as well if it's on that same side. From a radiation perspective, we tend to use 60 gray in 30 fractions of uh, radiotherapy fractionated five days a week, so six weeks of treatment. And this is a fairly common recipe. In the last decade, there was a lot of interest in dose escalation trying to achieve doses as high as 74 gray or even more. The RTOG 0617 study recently has somewhat put that to bed, which is a randomized study comparing 74 gray over seven and a bit weeks compared to the six weeks of 60 gray radiotherapy and didn't show a benefit for dose escalation. So in light of this and also more recent studies, particularly in the immunotherapy era with Pacific, our standard type of approach is chemoradiation therapy with concurrent chemotherapy in typically an institution that's either carboplatin-paclitaxel or cisplatin side, and then reassess. And if it's uh, no evidence of progression, continue with adjuvant immunotherapy.
0: Now, you mentioned something that actually hasn't come up in my own practice, as a pacemaker. So if you've got a pacemaker on the same side that you're delivering radiation, what do you do there, Shankar?
2: There are two options, and it kind of depends on the location of the tumor. If the tumor is fairly located inferiorly near the lung base, sometimes this is not an issue. We just Keep a check on the pacemaker radiation dose with little devices called TLDs that measure the radiation dose. Other times, if it's directly in field and the patient's actually dependent upon the pacemaker, it, may, it might even move the pacemaker to the other side prior to commencing chemo radiation therapy.
0: Oh, wow. And for that, that standard treatment, how well is that tolerated?
2: That's a great question. And it also really depends upon the location of the disease and the distribution in the mediastinum. Often in a situation like this where there's ipsilateral sided nodes, the treatment is tolerated reasonably well. With patients who've got more extensive medial disease, perhaps subcranial nodes or contralateral nodes, 3B disease, for example, then the t- treatment can get quite tough going. And the reason I say this is because esophagitis and nutrition is a really important part of the treatment protocol. And in general, from a toxicity perspective. We tend to see that the number of patients who have a severe esophagitis that could land them in hospital, around about 5%. And those patients from a pneumonitis perspective, which is the other side effect we really worry about, from a severe pneumonitis rate, we tend to see around about that 5 to 10% rate of severe pneumonitis. In general, patients do get tired, do get a bit of cough and shortness of breath. And the symptomatic pneumonitis that we tend to need to intervene perhaps with some steroid therapy. That's in the uh, order of about 20 to 30%. So, in general, most patients tend to do okay, but if the distribution of disease is large or wide, it can be quite tough going. Any role for protons? You know,
0: that's something we hear a lot from patients from, you know, in the US, direct to consumer advertising. So, Shankar, proton therapy, any role routinely?
2: So this is a slightly loaded question, and I don't want to tread on any toes, but just in general, proton therapy has a lot of putative benefits. A, hypothetically, it is advantageous approach compared to traditional linear accelerator-based external beam radiotherapy. From the physical properties, it has a lot of advantages. It doesn't have necessarily the evidence to suggest that this should be a frontline approach. I think where protons really come into their own is a re-irradiation context where trying to spare toxicities is extremely important and trying to take a different approach. But upfront, I think the evidence is still pending. There are some studies that suggest that potentially the toxicity could be lower. We don't necessarily think that the efficacy is going to be high and there's not a really good rationale for this, but perhaps from a side effect perspective, this could be a helpful approach.
0: So this patient did not receive proton therapy. We gave him a weekly carbopack and definitive radiation to 60 gray, but this is not a, a board question. This is a real life case. That initial brain MRI was without contrast. We repeated that, and that was only done after chemo chemorads had already started, and that MRI did show about a one-centimeter right frontal brain met. Now, Shankar, when something like this happens, what's your approach here for a stage four but what really looks like an oligometastatic lung cancer with a solitary brain met?
2: So this space of oligometastatic disease and lung cancer is really exploding at the moment. There's a lot more research in this area and we are much more cognizant that this kind of group can be treated with local aggressive therapies and have quite good outcomes. So interestingly, this kind of patient with that asymptomatic one centimeter frontoparietal metastasis that popped up on imaging, I think it really depends on the type of systemic agents that are available to us. For example, if this patient had an ALK driver mutation or an EGFR driver mutation, perhaps with this kind of approach, we might consider using a TKI tablet form of drug therapy upfront. But in general, the majority of patients are not in that situation and we're typically using something like stereotactic radiotherapy, which is a focused area of radiation to that one area, or if it's a peripheral tumor at the brain surface that's easily accessible, a neurosurgical approach followed by cavity boost with stereotactic radiotherapy is a good option too. In terms of timing, I suppose, with the, with the therapies and presuming that this patient had completed the chemoradiation treatment and uh, had tolerated it well, typically we would commence the local therapy up front and then commence whatever systemic therapy is necessary beyond this. Our own institution has produced some data on this space over the solitary oligometastasis in the brain. And looked at the five-year outcomes from our patients. And we're looking at about a 30% five-year survival. It's a small series of 50-odd patients from our own institution, but it's showing that patients who are selected in this approach, who are treated aggressively for their thoracic disease and receive local aggressive therapy via that surgery, neurosurgery, or stereotactic radiation do really well.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned surgery. People really shy away from craniotomy, from resection of solitary brain meds, but you know, the outcomes are Really, quite good. I'm really taken by that. So I'm glad you, you mentioned that. Aaron, as Shankar mentioned, neoadjuvant therapy really rapidly evolving. You know, in cases where patients get neoadjuvant chemo radiation, does radiation make the surgery more complicated in any way?
1: That's a great question. And I think, you know, when I think about neoadjuvant radiation, there's two really important things to talk about. And, and I'd be so appreciative to hear Shankar's view on this as well. But first, to me, if you make the decision to rate it, radiate a patient to the new adjuvant setting, give them a definitive or maximum medical therapy. So if the surgery is ultimately not offered, this avoids potential treatment hiatus, which in some studies have suggested a reduction in efficacy of radiation if we have these gaps in therapy by allowing recovery of clonal populations of tumor cells. So if you're going to do it, do it. Radiation does cause inflammation and inflammation can lead to fibrosis. So certainly when operating after radiation, in some cases, we find a significant amount of treatment effect or fibrosis. Ideally, I like to take the patients to the operating room on the earlier side. There are some studies suggesting that we should even be going six weeks or a little bit earlier than that um, within completion of therapy. Most of us are doing these procedures at least to start minimally invasively. Some are still doing them open. Even in open cases, this can still be accomplished with a rib sparing and muscle sparing approach. And we now have a number of studies that have demonstrated and confirmed that surgery after radiation can be performed very safely, even after higher doses. And so it's safe after 45 gray, it's safe after 60 gray with good perioperative morbidity, mortality profiles, and including specifically a low risk of bronchopleural fistula, which is something we all worry a lot about. And so I think we can still do surgery that is safe, we can do it in a minimally invasive or um, the most minimally invasive possible uh, mechanisms to perform these and still have great outcomes.
0: Now, when you say minimally invasive, I know you do a lot of robotic surgery. Do General question of robotic versus VATS. Can you sort of in a couple of sentences compare those two for us? Sure,
1: absolutely. So uh, VATS are video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery. Generally uses, well, you know, there's uniportals, so that could be one incision. But for the most part, people are using three to four incisions, small incisions, usually measuring about one to two centimeters. And one of them is a little bit bigger. We call that our utility port. And we use a camera and the other two ports or three ports to put instruments through and triangulate towards the structures on which we're operating. The interesting thing about VATs is that we're operating on a two dimensional screen. And so we're operating on three-dimensional structures using a two-dimensional screen. So that's kind of one of the drawbacks of VATS surgery. The instruments are a little bit more limited. Over the years, they've developed beautiful VATS instruments for us though with uh, kind of gentle curves to elasticate around vasculature with a lot more thought specific to the fact that we're operating within a very fixed structure. The chest is a fixed structure. The ribs don't really allow us to have additional space, much like you can insufflate the abdomen. We don't have that ability to do that in the chest. And so over the years, there's been kind of a a big development of instruments that have allowed us to perform these surgeries very precisely and meticulously. Just like with open procedures, we're doing, you know, a lobectomy is is a lobectomy. And so you're isolating and, and ligating a vein an artery and uh, the bronchus to the lobe or the segment that you're taking. Uh, Robot is a little bit different. So there's a robot itself, which has four arms and controls the instruments within the patient's chest. The surgeon is actually not scrubbed in. We're at a separate console, usually in the corner of the room. This is always a little surprising to people, I think, when they first learn about the procedure. So you really have to have a highly trained bedside staff member helping you. The robot actually replicates all of our movements. So everything that I do with my hand, the robot is replicating within the patient's chest in kind of a miniaturized version. The thing that I love about the robot is I have a beautiful 3D view. And so I'm operating on 3D structures with a 3D view. The downside to robotic procedures is I have no haptic feedback. So what do I mean by that? I can't feel how hard I'm pulling on tissues. Now, I've been operating with a robot for a while now, and I will swear to you <laughs> that I have haptic feedback, but really what that is, is I've learned all of the visual cues of what it looks like to be pulling on and manipulating tissues. And so I always know if, if somebody is pulling on tissue now, but, but there really is genuinely no haptic feedback. But the beauty of both of these approaches is with the smaller incisions, patients tend to have less pain. We've seen a reduction in some studies of perioperative morbidity. We're seeing short hospital stays, higher patient-reported quality of life outcomes in the early postoperative periods. And most importantly of all, we've been able to maintain really, really good oncologic procedures. So these are still being performed meticulously. They're still being performed with a high lymph node yield. And some studies have even shown that more lymph nodes are being taken in the minimally invasive setting, and we're seeing some improved oncologic outcomes and pathologic staging as a consequence.
0: The advances are undeniable, and and the outcomes are, are so much better. We've made so much progress in surgery and radiation. I think the key is really sort of finding where we need to best deliver those tools and how to integrate everything together. Shankar, I want to ask you a little bit about PORT. You know, sometimes even if we have proper mediastinal staging, We only learn about N2 disease after resection. Now, in those cases, at our institution, we had offered port or postoperative radiation therapy, and that changed a little bit at ESMO this past year. Can you comment a little bit on on that study and and how that's changed your practice, if at all?
2: Absolutely. Happy to comment on port or postoperative radiotherapy. But I might just flip it back a second because I was so super impressed with Erin's answer for preoperative radiation in the context of uh, surgery after this. And I'd like to just editorialize there just because Erin made a really good point about the dosing between 45 gray or 60 gray. There's very lot of lots in, that, in my local area. There's a lot of difference of opinion as what's tolerable. And, and I do think personally that 60 gray approach is very attractive. And there is a timing aspect that Erin briefly touched on, and it's really important actually to do the operation not too far away from the radiation, because the radiation effects are a function of time. We often see responses in the tumor several months down the track that continue to respond, and similarly, we see radiation fibrosis evolve over time as well. So typically, operating in a closer time point is is a really important point. But to get back to your question, which is flipping it around the other way, was if we do find incidental N2 disease or after an operation, how do we go about offering postoperative radiotherapy? So the Lung Art study was led from France, from Cécile Lepichoux, and this is a multidisitutional study that was randomizing 500 patients between standard of care, which in this case was adjuvant chemotherapy, versus post-operative radiotherapy using typically older techniques, 3D conformal radiotherapy. Now, this study did not show an advantage, a survival advantage to the use of post-operative radiotherapy, although it did show that mediastinal local regional relapses were reduced by 50%, a relative reduction of 50%, but the survival was not uh, affected and this is because of non-cancer deaths. In other words, there was a much higher risk of cardiopulmonary deaths, so presumably toxicity related late deaths in the, that received the radiotherapy as opposed to standard of care. So in our institution, this has influenced practice. We were typically, at the time anyway, offering adjuvant chemotherapy for the incidentally detected N2 disease. And at that stage, adjuvant chemotherapy was completed and we would typically not offer uh, post-operative radiotherapy except for selected cases. And this has certainly reinforced that practice. At the moment, we tend to select patients who may have some issues with the operative approach, for example, if the surgeon feels that have not been able to successfully clear all the disease. So that's a bit of the, this is where we rely on our surgeon's expertise to know whether they feel confident about resecting completely all of the disease. Other times we looked at the degree of extracapsular extension on the pathological specimens. And certainly if there is significant extracapsular extension or even microscopic resections, so R1 type resections. Then we would consider radiotherapy as well. And typically, we still do sequence this rather than doing this in combination because the relative risk of a relapse at a distant site is still higher in these patients. And so, typically, we would start with the adjuvant chemotherapy and then turn our attention to postoperative radiotherapy in these very few selected cases afterwards.
0: So this has been really helpful. And I just think the expertise that, that both of you bring, the detail, the perspective, just really reinforces you cannot manage a locally advanced stage three without a multidisciplinary approach. You really need everyone's individual expertise, open lines of communication. This has been really helpful, but we are out of time. And so wrapping up, I do want to thank our listeners. Tune in for more of our Tumor Board series. Um, you can download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a challenging case you'd like us to consider. Send us an email at podcasts at iaslc.org. I want to especially thank our gracious experts, Dr. Shankar Siva and Dr. Aaron Gillaspie for their expertise, their thoughtful answers. Both are also very active in IASLC and the lung cancer community, patient care, research. Thank you both for everything you're doing to improve outcomes for our patients. I look forward to a time when I'll be able to see both you in person.
2: Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Erin. I must say, this has been so much fun, and this has been an excellent and very thought provoking episode. And I'd like to thank you for the invitation and for ISLAC as well.
1: And same goes for me, Shankar. Stephen, it's been such a delight to join you guys this afternoon. A special thanks to ISLC for having us here today. And I also just want to make sure to remind everyone to send your patients who meet criteria for lung cancer screening so we can catch their disease before stage three. Survival is enhanced by earlier diagnosis, so make sure you screen everybody in front of
0: you. That's an excellent plug. We'll both get behind that. And that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you'll tune on the first and third Mondays of every month, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.
3: knew you. I thought it was inferred, then you surprised me. You love me more than I deserve. It's a lesson in love, its truth can be intense. Beyond all feelings, emotion and sense. And I hear these words spoken in youth with angst. Its strength is more powerful. Now I all the bullets that life shoots at you, the things that cloud over your love. And in my dream I thought I was flying, in reality I left for the night But in reality You cradled me so tight I looked towards others I thought we'd be the same But when we spoke last night It was clearer on one page It still amazes me The unconditionality You retain. In my dream, I thought I was flying.